Good evening, this is Rob McClure here with my co-host Nate Weggehelp this evening with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines. The Republican-led Senate began discussing the state's two-year budget today, the Associated Press reports. That budget included everything from cutting funding for the UW system to ending a pandemic-era childcare program to funding PFAS mitigation. One of the newest provisions of that budget is a $3 billion tax cut introduced last week. Although the tax cut would affect all income earners, the state's wealthiest residents would be the biggest beneficiaries. The Senate is expected to pass the budget written by the Joint Finance Committee this evening. It will go to the GOP-led Assembly tomorrow, who is also expected to pass the bill. It will then head to Governor Evers' desk, who will be able to pass the budget as is, veto the entire budget, or most, most likely, veto specific portions of the budget. The State Elections Commission came to a stalemate yesterday as to whether or not to allow Megan Wolf to continue as the state's top election official, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. State Republicans have been critical of Wolf's work running elections, specifically the 2020 presidential election. If her appointment were to go before the legislature, they would almost certainly vote not to reappoint her. While the majority of the commissioners agreed that Wolf should keep her job as top administrator, the committee deadlocked the vote, essentially naming no one to the position instead. Because there is nobody otherwise to to appoint to her position, Democrats argue, Wolf can remain on the job. It's likely the issue will wind up in the courts and it will be litigated while the state gears up for the 2024 presidential election. The City Plan Commission unanimously shot down a proposal to build a six-story apartment building on the 400 block of State Street. (coughs) The new building would require the demolition of three two-story buildings. Two of the buildings are over 100 years old but have been substantially renovated since their original construction. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the developer had made several proposals for the site over the last 18 months, all of which were rejected by the Plan Commission. With this latest denial, the developers say that the project is now dead. The buildings they propose to tear down are now all sitting vacant, and the developers say they do not know what they will do with those properties. The Madison School Board approved what is effectively a $5 per hour raise for school custodial staff. The raise consists of a specific increase of $3.20 per hour plus an 8% pay bump across the board. But the raise will only add to the school district's projected budget shortfalls. The Capital Times reports that the current proposed budget includes a $15 million deficit. The remaining ARPA funds the district got during the pandemic will cover most of that. However, when those federal funds dry up next year, the hole is expected to grow quickly. The school board passed the preliminary preliminary budget Monday night. It will go before the board for a final vote in October. And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of today's top stories.
Madison students got an unexpected day off today after the Madison Metropolitan School District canceled classes and all other activities due to very unhealthy air quality levels. That's as the air quality index pushed 233 this afternoon, driven by smoke from Canadian wildfires. WORT reporter Bennett Davishoff has more. According to Ron Schneider, a fire specialist with the Department of Natural Resources, the fires in northern Manitoba and Ontario continue to rage on. And a lot of these fires that are burning are in areas where they can't extinguish the fires because they're in such remote areas, or they just don't have the staff. They brought in firefighters from France, from Italy, Australia, Mexico. So they have a lot of partners helping them to extinguish these fires. But as long as we have this northerly flow from the air that goes from the northern provinces in Canada, down through the Midwest through Thursday, be seeing the smoke. And the smoke from those wildfires are being pushed by weather patterns into Wisconsin, casting a hazy sky over Madison today. With that smoke comes harmful particulate matter that's hard to avoid. Children, older adults, and people with heart and lung issues are most at risk of health complications, due to bad air quality. Officials say everyone should take precautions. In a press conference yesterday, a spokesperson for the Department of Natural Resources gave several tips for staying safe. If you don't have to be outside, the best way to avoid wildfire smoke is to stay indoors. Wearing an N95 mask can help protect against some of those smoke particles as well. And then in your home, make sure your doors and windows are closed in your home so you can keep that wildfire smoke and those particles uh, outside. And then run your air conditioning on recirculate if you can to help kind of circulate some of that fresh air. Dane County announced four clean air respite centers today where county officials are distributing masks. Those locations are Christ Presbyterian Church on Gorham Street, United Methodist Church on Mineral Point Road, Beth Israel Center on Mound Street, and Midvale Lutheran on Tokay Boulevard. The center at Christ Presbyterian closed at 4 p.m., and hours for our locations are unclear. Additional locations are expected to be announced soon. Also canceled today, Concerts on the Square, which has been postponed to tomorrow. A homecoming of rock band Garbage has been canceled at Bree Stevens Field. Goodman Pool is closed. The city of Madison says trash and recycling pickup might be delayed until Friday. And more closures could come as we approach the holiday weekend. An air quality advisory remains in effect until tomorrow at noon. For WORT News, I'm Bennett Davishoff. The temperatures in Madison are going to stay hot right on through this weekend, and if the smoke in the air clears up, it would be perfect weather to go for a swim in one of Madison's lakes. But do so at your own risk. There might not be a lifeguard available due to a local and nationwide shortage our producer, Nate Weggehout, took a deep dive in to find out what's going on. If you're looking to get your dive on at B.B. Clark Beach on Lake Monona this year, you're out of luck. The city's parks division will not be installing the diving raft at the beach this year due to a shortage of lifeguards. Like last year, Madison's 12 public beaches are not being watched by lifeguards this summer. 
While those beaches are currently open to swimmers, officials with the Parks Division have had to make some changes to keep swimmers safe. That includes removing the diving raft at B.B. Clark Beach. Terrence Thompson is the Park Division's Community Services Manager. He says that the drop-in lifeguards started in 2020. We're just not getting the uh, number of guards that we have seen uh, pre-pandemic. So from a number standpoint, we have 37 lifeguards that we've hired that um, are working at the pool this summer. Pre-pandemic, we were seeing between 80 and 120 lifeguards, um, and that's the number that we typically use to run the pool and the beaches. That matches a nationwide trend. A third of public pools across the country are short on lifeguards, according to reporting from NPR. Wyatt Werneth is with the American Lifeguard Association, a national organization specializing in lifeguard training. He says the pandemic catalyzed a steady decrease in interest for lifeguard positions. COVID put an all-stop to it. Anything that we had left from interest in people wanting to be a lifeguard dropped off the fact that COVID came because we have to have people come out, get close and personal, doing CPR training, extracting them from the water, and we couldn't do that training anymore, as well as People weren't recreating. You know, there no, you know, everybody was shut down. Thompson says that the issues brought on by COVID are certainly in play, but economics might also be a factor. He says the around $16 an hour the city pays lifeguards might not be enough to attract workers. And the stress of working at the city's one crowded public pool could make that job more intimidating. Thompson says that most cities of Madison's size have multiple pools to spread out the number of people at each pool, thus spreading out the stress. Meanwhile, the city is taking steps to hire more lifeguards by keeping the hiring window open all summer and by talking directly to students. We've also connected with all the MMSD schools, and we've had our staff, our aquatic staff, have gone in and um, given presentations to the students, have made connections with the social workers at the schools to also get names and referrals of, of folks that um, might be good candidates. We've also have relationships and have worked with all the swim groups that are locally in Madison as well to try to attract, get those folks interested in lifeguarding as well. You can apply for a lifeguard position online at cityofmadison.com slash jobs. While there may be no diving at B.B. Clark Beach this year, it is still open for swimming as long as water quality allows. But with no lifeguard on duty, officials say swim at your own risk. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggy Hout. Earlier today, Marquette Law School released the results of their latest poll, asking Wisconsinites their thoughts on everything from the general direction of the state to next year's U.S. Senate race to shared revenue. They conducted the poll with a new method of reaching out to people, finding ways to hear from people without the traditional cold call. <clears throat> Pardon me. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law School poll, about those changes and what they found in their latest survey. Now, Charles, you've been helping to run this poll for a, a while now, and with this most recent poll, you've sort of changed up your methodology on how you gather your data. Uh, what, what did you change with this poll? Well, we shifted because, as I think everyone knows, it's harder to get people on the telephone. What we are now doing is 
uh, still a random sample, just like it's always been, of registered voters. But now we sampled the public from the registered voter list and from an online panel of people who were sampled by their home addresses. But we now do the interviews with a mix of online response and telephone response. So in this survey, uh, we did a little over two-thirds of the interviews online and about a third by telephone. And this is intended to get us better ability to reach people that don't want to talk on the telephone. And it's true that, in fact, a lot of people seem to really enjoy doing the survey online because you can do it on your phone or a tablet or a laptop, and you can do it when you want to do it rather than when we call and interrupt your supper. And with that, uh, have you seen any results from that sort of change? As in, like, did you get more responses for this specific poll? Well, this is just the first test of it, but it does look like we did a better job of reaching voters under 30 uh, who have become increasingly hard to reach on the telephone. And people responded pretty quickly to the survey as well. So instead of sort of dribbling in over the course of a full week, we got a lot of interviews within the first 24 to 48 hours of first contacting people. And now I want to get into the poll itself. And this is your first Wisconsin poll in a little while here. So just sort of starting off at the top of your poll, how do people currently view the current state of Wisconsin? Well, they're still very negative about the direction of the state. 57% say the state's headed in the, off on the wrong track. 40% say it's headed in the right direction. That 40% is up just a little bit from October but you can see the balance is still very uh, pessimistic about the direction of the state. That's something we see in national polling as well as state polling for quite a while now, that negativity really does seem to be the mood of the electorate on, on this. And did you find anything that sort of stuck out to you as surprising or, or sort of out of the ordinary with these results? I, I think the one thing that's sort of interesting is on the direction of the state, there's a pretty strong partisan divide with Republicans more negative and Democrats more positive, but all groups are basically negative on balance. But we also asked a question of whether you think the government in Wisconsin is working as intended or is it broken? And about 70% say broken, and that's the same across all parties. Uh, both Democrats and independents and Republicans are very much in the broken camp. So there, there is no real partisan divide. Every partisan group is pretty frustrated at the way government is working in Wisconsin. And uh, uh, I think it's interesting that while you get a partisan divide on the direction of the state, this frustration that government's not working the way we might hope for it to uh, is really across the board. And now one thing that's just sort of starting here in Wisconsin is the race for Wisconsin's U.S. Senate seat, which uh, that will be taking place next year, next November, with Tammy Baldwin up for re-election. Uh, let's start off with, with her. What did you find with people's thoughts on Tammy Baldwin? Yeah, her favorable, unfavorable rating is a little bit net positive this time. 
40% said they viewed her favorably, 37 unfavorably, but still 22% say they don't have a no don't know enough about her to have an opinion. In October that was an even 37-37 split on favorability. So up 3 points maybe on favorable rating, no change in unfavorable. That This reading is comparable to the average across all of 2022 for her, but is a slight improvement over where she was in October. And now let's take a look at uh, potential opponents for Baldwin going into next year. Now, it seems like the overarching thing is that people just don't seem to know enough about any of the, the potential candidates yet, correct? That's exactly right. And let's be clear that this is normal at this time. We don't have an officially declared candidate, and every non-incumbent candidate starts with most of the public not knowing much about them. That's what you have the campaign for. This was true of Democratic Senate candidates last winter, before the, uh, long before the primary. It was true of the gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side last winter. So there's nothing unusual about that. That said, over 50% of Republicans say that they don't know enough to have an opinion about the four candidates or potential candidates we asked about. And all of them are not that well known. The best known is former Sheriff David Clark, and half of Republicans said they didn't know enough about him. 73% said they didn't know enough about Congressman Tom Tiffany. 85% didn't know Madison businessman Eric Hovde, who ran for the Senate in 2012, but hasn't run since. We also asked about Congressman Mike Gallagher, who then promptly took himself out of the race the day after we started the poll. Uh, But like Tiffany, 71% didn't have an opinion of him. And interestingly, Republicans don't know these people any better than Democrats or independents do. So I do think we're simply looking at the case of very early in the campaign, even if you're a member of Congress, you're just not that well known statewide. And you need to take these next uh, year and a half, roughly, to introduce yourself to voters. And like you said, I think in about a year here, those numbers are going to be wildly different. I think uh, we're going to be learning a whole lot more about all of those candidates. So now I want to get into some of the the issues that you sort of looked at for this poll, starting off with abortion access. What are people's thoughts on abortion access here in Wisconsin? Have there been any any changes in these numbers in recent months? There have been some modest shifts, but if you took the big picture Really, since 2012, when we first started polling on this, somewhere in the ballpark of 60% to two-thirds say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, and something between 30 and 35% say it should be illegal in most or all. But we did compare our results this June with June a year ago, just before the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And in that comparison, the percentage saying legal in all cases is up five points and legal in most cases is up three points. And on the illegal side, illegal in most is up by one point, 
But illegal in all cases has fallen from 11% to 6%. So a little more movement in that last category. But none of that shifts the broad balance of opinion. Two-thirds legal in all or most, one-third illegal in all or most. You won't be surprised that there is, of course, a big party divide on this question as well. We asked whether people favored or opposed the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe versus Wade. And again, 64% are opposed to that, 31% in favor. But a solid majority of Republicans, 63%, favor that decision overturning Roe. Whereas among independents, 69% oppose it. And among Democrats, 92% opposed. So there's quite a divide with Republicans heavily in favor of that decision, but big majorities of independents and Democrats opposed. And the next issue I want to get into here is shared revenue. Uh, Now, last week, Governor Evers did sign the bill into law, which sort of revamped shared revenue here in Wisconsin. Uh, Just sort of broadly, what do people think about sending funding to local governments here in Wisconsin? They're quite positive towards it. 70 percent favor increasing shared revenue, just 20 percent are opposed. And across parties, majorities of every party, including Republicans, favor this increase in revenue. It's also true across the regions of the state. There's over 60 percent and in most regions over 70 percent in favor of it. This is a good example of a legislative process that found a way to send money to virtually every place in the state even giving extra increases to some of the smaller communities around the state. And you see it in our numbers in that it crosses the partisan divide that support this, and especially it it crosses the urban-rural divide with all places in the state showing nearly a 70% support for the change in shared revenue. I've been talking with Charles Franklin, director of the Marquette Law School poll, about the results of their latest state poll, which released just earlier today. Now, there's a whole lot more in this poll that we didn't have time to get to, including thoughts on next year's presidential election. So be sure to check out the poll for yourself over at Marquette Law School Polls website. Charles, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us. Last Wednesday, the Verona Area School Board met to decide the fate of Corey Saffold, the, the director's, excuse me, the district's director of security. That's after an altercation with a 17-year-old student resulted in Saffold being put on unpaid leave and prosecutors moving forward with a felony charge. Last week's meeting, though, lasted into the early morning hours, and members of the community turned out, hoping that Saffold would not be dismissed. In any case, the question remains, how can school security staff best be supported? Our reporter Maria Brunetta was at last week's lengthy meeting and brings us this. 
After eight hours of deliberation, the Verona Area School Board decided early Thursday morning to not terminate Corey Saffold's contract. Instead, they decided to work with him to redefine the position. So we do not condone the actions taken by Mr. Stafford, as they did not live up to our standards of our policies. Dr. Clarity and his administration did the right thing in bringing this termination to us, as we would expect them to do for all of our children. Based upon Corey's history and exemplary service to the district, we expect that he will work cooperatively with the administration to redefine the role, to better serve the Director of Security and Crisis Management, the Director, its employees, <coughs> and its students going forward. That was John Porco, School Board Deputy Clerk. With the board's final decision after a long night of hearings, testimony from witnesses, and a video footage from the May 18th incident that resulted in a physical altercation between Saffold and a 17-year-old student. Saffold joined the district in 2019 after working as a school resource officer at Madison West High School. During this time at West, he helped start the Black Student Union. Saffold's position at West High School ended after the Madison Board decided to end the use of school resource officers, or SROs. Saffold says he wanted to continue in the Madison Police Department, and if he had stayed on the force, he would probably be district captain by now. As a police officer, I was recruited by the Florida uh, Area School District. I did not ask to be here. Saffold says the Verona School District recruited him even after he said no, but the district was persistent. He says after starting out as security director that he became the district's director of crisis management. In that job, he recommended that the district hire a security team at each school, and while his team is vital in de-escalating situations with students, he rarely gets involved. But on May 18th, during an altercation with an unnamed 17-year-old student, Saffold says he felt the need to step in. It was the tone that I heard in the voice of, of my security assistant, Quinn Cannon. He had a tone in his voice that as a security person or an officer, you know when something is escalated and when something doesn't feel right. And I don't remember the exact word, but it said, he said something to the degree like he's trying to fight me. The security footage of the altercation was the key piece of evidence in a meeting that resembled a legal hearing, with district administrators arguing for his termination and Saffold's team arguing that he should stay employed at the school. In the video, you see Saffold and the student walking down a hallway. Saffold states that during this time, he was telling the student to go to the office, and the student was making physical threats toward him. The student then enters a classroom. What happens in the classroom can't be seen by the video, but according to Saffold and witness Kim Griffin, substitute teacher at the time, the student continued making verbal threats. And at one point, Saffold says the student lunged toward him, and at that moment, he backed away. Saffold and the student then exited the classroom and continued walking down the hallway. At that moment, associate principal Michael Murphy enters the frame. The student then stops and turns to face Saffold. It's clear that the argument is getting heated. Saffold steps toward the student, to which the student steps towards Saffold, touching him chest to chest. Murphy put his hand in between the two, but it did not prevent escalation. I just can't have someone of that size and me in the position that I'm in. I cannot get struck um, because many times it could be one punch in your, in your route. And so at that point, I feared that I was going to be struck and I wanted to defend myself. Saffold strikes the student with his elbow, and it escalates into a physical fight, ending in Saffold handcuffing the student. 
According to Saffold, the student continued to make threatening comments even when put in the police car. Immediately after the incident, Saffold went to the hospital for bite-related injuries. Verona Superintendent Tremaine Clardy recommended firing Saffold after an investigation from the district's Human Resource Department. And Saffold broke several school board policies by striking and restraining a student in the district. Rochelle Haiti, Director of Human Resources at Verona Area School District, maintained that Saffold should be fired. She said this employment investigation was unlike any other because of the number of policies that had been broken. The district has staff take a nonviolent intervention course, which provides staff the tools to de-escalate situations where a student shows signs of aggression. Associate Principal Murphy was a witness at Wednesday's trial and testified to how he would have used his nonviolent intervention training. I think about uh, tone of voice and just trying not to match energy of uh, tone of voice. And you try to be really directive as to where we want the student, but not the, to like engage where I'm, I'm escalating my tone so that they're gonna, you know, kind of increase their their tone or volume. I, I use posture and proximity. So you know, as far as posture, you know, not kind of uh, being in that kind of more intimidating stance where I'm like squared up with them, but rather kind of. Off to the side. But for Saffold, the training was not enough. Haiti recounts that during her interview with Saffold, he said that it would take him another 10 years to unlearn his police training, and that his four years at the district was not enough. Community and staff came out to support Saffold. One couple I spoke with says they get how complicated school safety has become. I have a um, sister that taught in this school district for 33 years, and I heard daily what she encountered. And it's a very, it's changed a lot, and it's become a very dangerous position to be in. You know, you hope that they never get to that happening, but you hope that a teacher has the ability to defend him or herself if they're put in that position, um, I think is only that was Pat Ely, who grew up in the district and has lived here for decades. She attended the meeting with her husband, Mike. I think that um, Mr. Saffold is a very upstanding person based on our previous encounters with him. And I do not believe that this is the right process for the school board to take, other than to say he belongs where he is. Pat, her husband, Mike, and several community members and staff stayed until 1.30 a.m. when the board voted to retain Saffold as an employee. But Saffold's job may change and entail even less contact with students than before. Meanwhile, Saffold faces a felony count of child abuse after investigators recommended pressing charges following an investigation. A status conference is set for July 17th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Maria Brunetta. It's now time for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. And thank you, Lauren. Well, the latest sunset of the year occurred yesterday at 8.42 and 53 seconds p.m., the sun will set only a second earlier tonight, so you can still take the opportunity to hoist a toast to the closing of the maximum light period for the year. The days are now going to be shortening at both ends until the uh, earliest sunset of the year occurs on December 9th. 
Well, if you catch the sun setting this evening, it's likely to again appear, as it did last night, as a red ball disappearing into brown haze, given the still persistent wildfire smoke over us, which even made the BBC news this evening, as you heard. The smoke manages to keep finding us, you might have noticed, even no matter which way the wind is blowing. The surface winds have veered more than 180 degrees since yesterday, from northwesterly to northeast to southeast and to south, even southwesterly a little bit today. As the surface high pressure cell moved from Minnesota across Wisconsin to around Detroit, where it is now, So instead of northerly and northwesterly winds feeding us smoke from wildfires up in Ontario and Manitoba, as was the case yesterday, we're now getting our smoke from the older set of fires that's over in Quebec. That's courtesy of winds which are wrapping southward, westward, and northward around the surface high pressure cell clockwise, dragging the smoke uh, basically through Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and then up into here. So a vast swath of territory from the Hudson River way across to the Missouri is currently buried under dark gray air quality warnings from the National Weather Service on the National Weather Service front page map this evening. And to the south and west of there on the map, an equally large chunk of terrain is under red and orange heat-related warnings. That's the area from about uh, Texas through Oklahoma and Missouri over to Alabama, which is currently sitting below the upper ridge, which I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast. The behavior and evolution of that warm air dome over the coming days will be one of the factors at play in whether we can generate some thunderstorms around here and start alleviating our drought. We're nearly seven inches behind now on rainfall since the beginning of May. And with temperatures creeping back towards 90 perhaps tomorrow and certainly in the mid and upper 80s for the next few days, we could certainly use a good dousing. Whether or not we can get that to happen, we're going to have to see. Uh, A surge of higher dew point air is going to be pushing northward off of that warm air ridge to our south. Up into Wisconsin overnight tonight as suddenly low-level winds remain active ahead of the passing swirl of low pressure that's heading across northern Minnesota currently. You can see that actually transpiring on the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening. It's up in the featured graphics. The much more buoyant air that will be heading northward will be trapped under a little bit of a camping inversion around 9,000 feet overnight. And we may lack a triggering mechanism to boost that air upward and start thunderstorms going. A low-level boundary will be pressing southward at us from convection that we presume will get going up to our north later on. So that looks potentially auspicious on at least some of the models. But there's a suggestion, too, that convection will be initiating down to our south over Iowa and Illinois and potentially intercepting and tying up the moisture down there. So a bit of an open uh, hand at this case, at this time. Uh, In any case, uh, we'll wake up to a stickier atmosphere tomorrow and hope that possibly with uh, surface heating producing uh, convective initiating temperatures uh, later in the afternoon and another weak boundary approaching from the northwest and a much less capped environment on prognostic soundings as well, that between those factors we can get some scattered action going. I will say, though, the convective-allowing computer models are not uh, terribly keen on uh, seeing thunderstorms tomorrow. Uh, storms would be fairly strong if they could initiate with some strong winds and strong downdrafts and a fair bit of rain, but probably no uh, spin-ups of uh, tornadoes. 
Uh, in any case, a more stable air mass, slightly cooler and drier, will be easing into the area later tomorrow and Friday, so uh, precipitation prospects decline. The upper ridge and warm surface air will be remaining to our south through Saturday, however, so ridge-riding convection uh, along that quasi-stationary boundary down there may be able to work far enough north to reach some areas, uh, likely are those closer to the Illinois border. Another weak low-pressure circulation will then be approaching as, uh, from the west as we get into the weekend, and that might also be able to induce a more northward push of moisture and precipitation, but our best odds really look do look to be tonight and tomorrow. So after a smoky red sunset this evening, temperatures will drop to the mid or upper uh, 60s on southerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Uh, it's possible we may hear some isolated peals of thunder from what will be elevated thunderstorms after probably 1 or 2 in the morning, lasting perhaps as late as dawn, so cross your fingers on that score. We may see more cloud cover greeting us in the morning, especially if we do get some thunderstorms overnight, but otherwise I'm expecting tomorrow to be generally sunny with, uh, again, a fair amount of smoke cutting the sun. And that may keep us off 90 degrees, but I think we'll be in the upper 80s on south-to-southwest winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Dew points will become sticky up in the upper 60s, possibly even reaching 70. We'll hope for a, a round of uh, thunderstorms uh, after, in the afternoon tomorrow. The National Weather Service puts our chances at least briefly around 40% in the late afternoon, uh, after which winds will be veering more northwesterly but remain generally light through the evening and overnight. Temperatures will drop back to the mid-60s. Friday, slightly drier air will be working into the area on westerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour, allowing the temperatures, I think, to reach the mid-80s anyway, with the dew points a little lower in the low 60s. Smoke may abate a little more as uh, the more westerly winds pick up. Uh, showers and thunderstorms are possible, but likely are uh, down to our south in the south and southwestern parts of the listening area. We'll drop into the low to mid-60s overnight with a return to the mid-80s on Saturday and continued light northwesterly winds. Cloud cover off of uh, ongoing convection to our south and southwest may hold temperatures down a bit, uh, perhaps both Saturday and Sunday. And we'll be back in the low and mid-80s on Sunday, possibly with some precipitation chances if the convection works a little farther north that day. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 81 degrees. The dew point temperature is 50. Winds are out of the south at 12 miles per hour, still gusting up towards 20 miles per hour on a regular basis. Uh, mostly clear over the station currently with the thick smoke in the air. The visibility is down to one and three quarter miles out at the airport. And the barometer is at 29.87 inches of mercury and uh, falling slowly. We go now to the last week of June 1966 when the Common Council took a stand against discrimination at private clubs. UW students protested the growing war in Vietnam and tragedy struck at the Henry Vilas Zoo. Stu Levitan has the details from 57 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the fourth week of June, 1966. 
Private clubs which discriminate on the basis of race, color, creed, or ancestry are now on notice they'll have to change if they want a liquor license in the city of Madison, as the Common Council adopts a report from the Equal Opportunities Commission listing six steps for the city to take to ban such bias. Among them, that effective immediately no new liquor licenses be granted to any private organizations which practice invidious discrimination in their membership policies, and that the three private clubs with a whites-only clause in their national charters that already have licenses, the Eagles, Elks, and Loyal Order of Moose, will have to end their racist membership policies if they want to renew their licenses. The council sets that provision to take effect, quote, at some future date after 1969. In a not-unrelated development, the Madison Board of Realtors, which only last month took out newspaper ads opposing the proposed federal fair housing law as, quote, forced housing, may be inching away from its long-standing opposition to integration legislation. A motion this week for the board to contribute $1,500 to support the National Board's congressional lobbying against the bill is soundly defeated. But there's no quorum at the meeting, so the vote doesn't count, and the real realtor position remains uncertain. Tuesday afternoon, June 28th. Three-year-old Ruth Ellen Friedman is with her mother, older brother, and some other children at the Henry Vilas Zoo. The family is spending the summer in Madison because Ralph Friedman, an English professor at Princeton University, is about to start a guest lectureship at the University of Wisconsin. The youngsters all want to see the famous elephant Winky, brought here by the pennies and nickels of children in 1950. The mothers warn the children to stay back, but several crawl through an opening under the fence to approach the cage itself, Ruth Ellen with them. Erected in 1926 as temporary quarters, the small cage has bars that are ten inches apart. Ruth Ellen unknowingly teases Winky by stretching out her hand with popcorn, then bringing it back. Suddenly, the 7,500-pound pachyderm grabs the girl's wrist with her trunk and pulls her through the bars, flinging her down like a doll and stomping on her as everyone screams. Keeper Melvin Bolick comes running as the elephant trumpets, but it's too late. It's the first fatal accident at the zoo since 1934, when nine-year-old Jimmy Caravella was killed by a polar bear after he slipped while climbing a tree near the bear's cage and fell into the enclosure. The council had appropriated half a million dollars last year for improvements at the zoo, including the elephant quarters. But the money hasn't been spent because a joint city-county committee is currently studying whether the zoo should be expanded or relocated. Two days after the tragedy, the zoo begins blocking the opening. Friends and neighbors send $75 to the Freedmans, which they donate to the Madison Public Library in Ruth Ellen's memory. It's to buy preschool picture books in the children's room in the new main library, which this week celebrates its first anniversary. A special book plate will mark each volume indicating the gift. In fall, the zoo trades Winky and $3,500 to a breeding farm in Woodland, Washington, for a 4,200-pound, 10-month-old elephant whom they call Winky Two. Winky is later moved to the Portland Zoo, where she resides until 1977, when she is moved to the Wildlife Safari in Winston, Oregon, where she dies in 1982 at age 35.
On June 29th, about 250 students rally on the Library Mall to protest President Johnson's decision to bomb North Vietnamese oil supplies targets near the cities of Hanoi and Haiphong. Among those speaking are sociology and teaching assistant Evan Stark, acting chair of the Committee on the University and the Draft, who compares the action to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima as, quote, an attack on civilization itself. Philosophy teaching assistant Robert Cohen, who says America is, quote, becoming known as a monster, also speaks. In a not-unrelated development, the Internal Security Subcommittee of the United States Senate claims that political demonstrations at the UW and the University of California at Berkeley are backed by the Communist Party. The subcommittee issues a 41-page report which calls the W.E.B. Du Bois Club, quote, the most direct link between the new left and the established communist apparatus. And it names 13 individuals, including professors and staff of the Daily Cardinal, it says support the Communist Party. The report is based on testimony in 1965 from former Madison radio commentator Robert Segrist. The student's name dismissed Segrist's assertions as ludicrous. On June 29th and 30th, Dr. Catherine Clarenbach, Director of Continuing Education at the UW and Chair of the Wisconsin Commission on the Status of Women, has an action item in mind when she goes to Washington, D.C. as a delegate to the Federal Status of Women Conference to introduce a resolution demanding the Federal Equal Opportunities Commission enforce the gender-based provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. She says she's, quote, absolutely appalled when the women running the conference won't let her introduce the resolution for risk of offending the Johnson administration. It crystallizes her understanding of the need for a national lobby like the NAACP to apply outside pressure. So she organizes a like-minded group of activists, starting with author Betty Friedan, to sit together at the closing luncheon, where the group essentially founds modern feminism. The eight women decide on the name National Organization for Women, NOW, which Friedan writes on a napkin. The organization's goal, quote, to take the actions needed to bring women into the mainstream of American society. Others at the luncheon join the effort. By dessert, 27 women have put down $5 each, which Clarenbach collects, along with a napkin, thus becoming Now's first secretary. In October, Clarenbach organizes the temporary steering committee that organizes Now's founding conference, where she is elected chair of the board. And the Madison Youth Commission wants businesses and organizations which hold teen dances to keep ignoring two state statutes concerning age and parental escorts. State law currently provides that persons under 18 may not attend a public dance unless accompanied by a parent or guardian, and that the curfew for persons under 16 is 10 p.m. Police Chief Wilbur Emery says starting to enforce the laws would end the teen dances, but, quote, if I get an indication the public wants the law enforced, I will enforce it. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Bennett Davishoff and Maria Brunetta. 
Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast with help for the final time from Chuck Hademan. Thanks for everything, Chuck. We send you off with the very best wishes. Nate Reggiehau produced the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. You can stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out at 7.30, and we'll be back in your ears tomorrow night at 6 with all of tomorrow's news. Until then, good night.